Assalamu alaikum. May the peace that only God can give be upon you. Good evening and welcome to Radio Islam. It's your host, Tariq Alameen, and we are broadcasting on WCEV 1450 AM. And we are streaming live at WCEV1450.com. If you are new, and we always know there's somebody new, but if you're new to the Radio Islam family, we welcome you. We're on every night from 6 to 7 p.m. Central, coming to you from the wonderful city of Chicago, Illinois. That rumble you hear in the background, that's our background music. We've got the elevated trains of the loop uh, running just a few feet away from us. Uh, but you can keep up with us by following and liking us on social media. You'll find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Radio Islam USA. That's at Radio Islam USA. And you can also catch up with those episodes that you've missed wherever you get your podcasts. So if that's iTunes, TuneIn, Google Play, or SoundCloud, you'll find us at Radio Islam USA. We make it easy for you. The same name, social media and podcast, at Radio Islam USA. And last but not least, if you'd like to give us a call, feel free to do so at 773-750. I'm sorry, that's not right. How did I mess our phone number up? You know why? I'm going to tell you why. It's because somebody's calling me right now. Obviously, someone, someone who does not know what I do for a living. But anyway, if you want to give us a call, you can do so at 312-750-1178. That's 312-750-1178. I want to put this phone down so I don't get sidetracked again. Um, <laughs> see, you can talk like this to family. So look. All right, so look here, Radio Sound family. Tonight, um, we're actually going to we're gonna talk about something that is not in the news nearly enough. Uh, folks need to know about this, so I'm really, really happy uh, and we are fortunate to have somebody in studio that can talk to us about it and educate us and uh, and hopefully get us up to speed so at the end of this hour you are more empowered you are more aware of what's going on and and do something with that knowledge so tonight in studio we have dr timothy gross uh, he is an he is an assistant professor of china studies at rose holman institute of technology in Terre Haute, indiana where he teaches an introductory course on Islam, Islam in China, and ethnicity in China. He's lived and researched there for over three years and has been funded by Fulbright, Boren, and the Association for Asian Studies. His research on Uyghur ethno-national identity and everyday expressions of Islam in China has been published in several leading academic journals and has been featured in Foreign Policy, The Economist, and CNN. Welcome, Assalamu alaikum. It is good to have you. Thank you very much for having me and for the uh, very warm introduction. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. So uh, we're going to be talking about the, the Uyghur. Mm -hmm. Some people, um, if, if you're following on, on Twitter, it's, it's probably more, more prevalent there than, than I've seen on Facebook. Mm -hmm. But uh, the re-education camps, uh, the internment camps, the whatever however you want to dress it up. But uh, the incarceration of Uyghur uh, Muslims mm -hmm. uh, in China to basically strip them of their Islam. So that's, that's, that's what's going on right now. So we're talking about the, the, the Uyghur. So first, could you give us a, 
give us a picture of who the Uyghur are. Uh, absolutely. So um, obviously when, when many people think of China, um, the population comes to mind. And there are 1.3 billion people in China. Um, and the vast majority are what we consider or what are classified as, as Han Chinese, so about 1.1 billion. Um, though, you know, conservative estimates suggest that there are anywhere from 20 to 24 million Muslims in China, uh, and they are classified into one of 10 uh, ethno-national groups, what they call as Minzu. Uh, and one of these groups are the, the Uyghurs. Um, and so according to the most recent, recent census data, uh, which was compiled in 2010, there are roughly 11 million uh, Uyghurs uh, who live predominantly in the Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region, which is situated uh, in northwest China. Um, it is one-sixth the total landmass of the People's Republic of China. It's three times the size of France, um, and it borders uh, countries such as Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Mongolia. Internally, it borders Tibet, etc. So it's a very large uh, area. Um, you know, historically, uh, we can trace Uyghur origins really to uh, pre-Islam, uh, so as, as kind of a Buddhist uh, nomadic uh, who eventually, um, you know, went through a process of of, of, of becoming sedentary. Mm -hmm. uh, conversion to Islam began in the 10th century with an important local ruler, Sutuk uh, Bukhar Han, and then a, a, a slow but, um, but steady conversion from the 10th century to the 17th century. Um, and then uh, when the People's Republic of China um, established itself in uh, 1949, uh, the Chinese Communist Party embarked on a nationwide uh, identification campaign uh, and, you know, with uh, borrowing some from the Soviets, I identified the Uyghurs as one of 56 of these uh, ethnic groups. Mm. So the Uyghurs do not see themselves as Chinese. Well, it's or, or how do they see themselves? That's an interesting question because although that they live inside the borders of the People's Republic of China, mm -hmm. uh, those who still have passports um, that are Uyghur, um, they have a Chinese passports. But in terms of their loyalty, um, you know, there is a significant population of Uyghurs uh, whose loyalties lie um, to the West, uh, meaning uh, to uh, other Central Asian. Turkic and Muslim peoples uh, to the west side of Xinjiang uh, as opposed to kind of the Han cultural Confucian core that lies to the east of, of Xinjiang. Uh, so yeah, so I think um, you know, many Uyghurs see themselves first as, as Uyghur, right. um, as, as uh, Turkic, uh, mm. and as Muslim, um, and you know, although Chinese incorporates or some of their identity, it's not always um, the strongest of their collectivities. Right, right. Because the modern understanding of China is, is exactly that. It is a, a modern uh, understanding of the, uh, the, 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 under the Communist Party. It is not the traditional China that existed prior to uh, Chairman Mao. Exactly. So, um, you know, to so I think to have integrated uh, or assimilated into the mainstream requires um, embracing Han Chinese cultural norms, which uh, right. means adoption of, 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 of Chinese language, um, you know, uh, have either a watered down or 
um, or even a complete rejection of, of um, religious convictions, and, and many Uyghurs aren't willing to do that. You know what? I want to take a step back for a moment mm -hmm. because today marks the, it marks the anniversary of a, of a particularly important uh, uh, event, mm -hmm. it being June 26th. Would you talk a bit about that? Yeah, so, so June 26th um, uh, uh, is uh, the anniversary uh, of one episode of what's now been a, a string of violence that began uh, in June 2009 with uh, riots in Urumqi, um, um, where there, we've seen discontent manifest itself uh, in violence directed towards the state. Um, and, and then on June 26th, um, and I'm terrible with dates, so I'm not a historian, it's 2014, <laughs> is that correct? 2014. Yeah. Um, um, we saw a siege on uh, a police station in the sleepy town of Lukchun, which is near uh, Turpan. And I think this particular incident of violence uh, is significant because uh, Lukchun had actually benefited from some state uh, economic planning. Mm -hmm. uh, I had visited the region several times. Uh, many of the families actually praised uh, some of the government policy there, yet there was violence. Um, and it seemed to have been because of what um, local Uyghurs perceived as injustice, uh, as leniency towards the murder of a young boy um, and then <clears throat> who was alleged of stealing from a, a factory owned by a Han man. Um, the, Han, uh, uh, the Han man uh, was given a very uh, lenient sentence because uh, the authorities deemed him to be um, uh, mentally ill and mentally unstable. Um, and so he had a lesser sentence. And so uh, there are a group of Uyghurs uh, attacked a, a police station, uh, leaving uh, two dozen uh, dead, including um, the perpetrators. Right. Now, what is really, uh, what I think should be paid attention to is that the, the explanations that were given, mm -hmm. uh, and this, this is important in being able to, uh, to address a matter from a justice, mm -hmm. from a standpoint of justice. Uh, and that didn't seem to be the case. Uh, that that was really that was not the interest. The interest was more in trying to explain away, uh, explain away the violence, mm -hmm. uh, to present it as um, basically dissatisfied or radicalized, mm -hmm. uh, a radicalized minority, radicalized from the outside, mm -hmm. and and not really take into account uh, a scenario, scenario that you just mentioned that people were dissatisfied dissatisfied with the fact that a young person was killed and mm -hmm. no one was held accountable for it. Yeah, you're exactly right. And, and we see this well-rehearsed script, um, you know, being recycled, especially since 2009. But even, you know, we can trace it back to 9-11 and China getting involved on the, the quote-unquote global war on terror, uh, where the Chinese Communist Party tries to deflect blame from its own policies and then blame acts of violence, especially those that come at the hands of, of Uyghurs, uh, and blame it on a small minority of the population that has been, um, they have been duped, uh, they have been uh, by outside factors, outside forces, and they have gone through a process of quote-unquote extremification, mm -hmm. uh, and that's tied closely with uh, Islam itself. And again, 
by embracing this narrative, which is, of course, uh, very simplistic and accurate, um, it allows the Chinese government to um, not deal uh, with its own inadequate, uh, unsuccessful policies in the region. Right. Excuse me. Excuse me. Now, um, some of the problems or some of the, the things that the Uyghur would be dissatisfied with, uh, even though they have, uh, they primarily live in an, uh, an autonomous region, mm -hmm. right, uh, Xinjiang, mm -hmm. right? Correct. So, um, but it's also stated that the uh, the authority, whoever the appointed official is, mm -hmm. there's only so much autonomy that the individual mm -hmm. actually has. Is, is, is that fair to say that people don't really feel represented uh, or don't really feel that they have any real autonomy? Yeah, exactly. Um, so the way it's it's enshrined in, in several laws, it, it you know it presents itself as a a pretty good deal for Uyghurs, and so as being recognized uh, as the uh, Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region, mm -hmm. um, there are certain laws that again theoretically give uh, Uyghurs more autonomy to decide the development of their language, um, to have um, you know certain subsidies um, that are, are provided by the central government. Uh, to have more control uh, over religious affairs, education, et cetera, but that hasn't actually what that that's not what actually is happening in reality. Uh, and Uyghurs actually have, you know, a very little uh, in terms of a meaningful um, meaningful political influence uh, in the region. And what we've seen, especially since uh, 2001 and 2009, uh, is that uh, the Chinese language is being prioritized over Uyghur language uh, in all levels of schooling. Uh, we see increasingly strict restrictions on religious practice, uh, not just for government employees who would also be members of the Chinese Communist Party, but also minors, and then anything deemed, quote unquote, um, uh, illegal, which is a, a, a problematic term uh, in itself. And then we also see uh, some economic issues where, um, you know, although there are quotas for state enterprises, that in the private sector there aren't these quotas, and so many Uyghurs aren't experiencing the economic benefits uh, that um, Han Chinese are experiencing in Xinjiang and in other parts of China. Mm. Now, Xinjiang is uh, the, the area, it is also materially rich, um, uh, the largest deposits of, of coal and, mm -hmm. and gas and oil uh, that, to, that are to be found in China, period. Uh, so how is, how is Beijing, how is China mm -hmm. responding to the fact that this is where the majority of the Uyghur population mm -hmm. is, uh, is settled? Well, they don't, they don't see it as an indigenous Uyghur area. Uh, and if we look at the official narrative of, of Xinjiang, it's that, again, this is one that's promoted by the Chinese Communist Party and not necessarily one I subscribe to, is that Xinjiang has been an inalienable part of China since ancient times. Okay. And with that narrative, using these resources and then using the re uh, revenue generated from these resources uh, in Beijing is is patriotic. It's not actually taking away from the Uyghurs, but the Uyghurs should be proud that something that is common to land that they call home is helping drive uh, the national economy. 
but the jobs that would uh, that would be necessary to facilitate that mm -hmm. driving, those jobs are not going to the Uyghur. Especially in the energy sector. Um, and there was a study published in, in uh, 2015 or 16 that suggests that of all the um, segments or all the sectors of economy, Uyghurs are underrepresented uh, most in the energy sector. So these lucrative jobs uh, in the oil industry um, um, are going mostly to, to Han Chinese. So in other words, Uyghurs aren't benefiting themselves from the uh, oil deposits that have been uh, found and exploited in Xinjiang. Hmm. Now we've seen this in, in other areas around the world, um, uh, this, this tendency to import, uh, even if they are from you know, I internal population, mm -hmm. uh, but there there's an importation of Han settlers. Mm -hmm. Is that correct? Into these into these areas mm -hmm. where these these jobs are going to be necessary mm -hmm. for uh, China's uh, growth uh, as far as in the in, in in the energy sector, and they are they're they're making it uh, they're incentivizing it mm -hmm. if I'm not mistaken, right? For for Han Chinese to to come on in. Yeah, exactly. There have been uh, uh, several waves, you know, beginning in 1949 of, um, you know, state-planned migration of Han Chinese in the area. Uh, and then there's also uh, several thousand, tens of thousands of Han who voluntarily go to these regions. Um, and, you know, we shouldn't necessarily, um, you know, pin them as uh, agents of the state, but but those who are generally trying to make a better living for themselves and see Xinjiang as part of the country. But it's the state-planned migration programs that right. um, have really, um, I think, placed pressure on an already fragile uh, economy in the region, the one where there is um, a lot of, of of disparity between or among ethnic groups. Right, and I'm glad you mentioned that, Tim, because. Um, Poverty or the desire to for upward mobility in society—that's something that every every people has, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, it just so happens that that the the Han are are giving a, uh, they're being given a pathway mm -hmm. for that upward mobility, right. whereas the Uyghur um, are not. And we know traditionally uh, China, for the most part, it is mostly agrarian. Exactly. Uh, and, and and the the Uyghur, you know, they're within that tradition, mm -hmm. that agrarian tradition. Mm -hmm. um, but they're not they're not coming along. They're not being brought along for the for, for the for the for the ride. Exactly. Yeah. So they yeah. they haven't been um, really kind of. They haven't. They've been on the sidelines a lot for the. I mean, there's a lot of infrastructure going in and a lot of of. Um, you know, kind of industrial development going on in Xinjiang, but for right. the most part, Uyghurs have been on the sidelines of, the, of these of these state projects. Right. Now, look, Radio Islam family, I know you're wondering when are we going to get to the uh, to the um, uh, re-education. We we are going to get to that, but uh, it, it's important that we 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 get a, a, a clear picture before we even get to in, into that point, uh, because there's a this is a recent development, mm -hmm. um, a fairly recent development. The, these, and what's the what's the, the the name that they use for it? The name that they use um, is concentration education transformation centers. So in Chinese, it goes something like, uh, 
our patient zhongxin. Uh, and so again, if we, if we, and it's problematic, so the Chinese speakers in the audience, I know it's problematic to uh, translate things character by character, but if we do so for the sake of, of having a better understanding of what's going on, these are concentrated education, so they transform, and these are centers for this re-education process. That sounds really benign. <laughs> yeah, I know, yeah, right, yeah. yeah. C- kind of like, uh, uh, what is it, tender age, um, what, what's, what's, what is it, tender age, uh, tender age something, something they, they came up with uh, for the families, uh, these children that have been separated from their families mm-hmm. at the, the borders, right. oh, yeah. and they came up with tender age something, tender age shelters, tender age shelters. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah, sounds really, really warm and fuzzy. Well, if you look at um, how these re-education centers are presented to other Uyghurs, is that these are places where sick people go, they're under the care of the government, they're receiving free education, free shelter, uh, free medical care if needed, and they come out as an enlightened individual. So it's being viewed through almost a pathology, a pathology of sickness that needs to be treated and cured. Um, and wow. so again, they look at this as being um, part of, of altruism, that this is the Chinese government helping a minority people. Right. But they are being, uh, they're being forcibly taken, right? Exactly. So of course, that's, that's the caveat that no one wants to, to talk about, that, um, that People, uh, of course, there is very little evidence that uh, the number of people who have been detained, and, and, and conservative estimates suggest this is uh, a couple hundred thousand people, but more likely upwards of a million people. Um, there's no evidence that that 10% of the Uyghur population has been quote unquote um, extremified. Uh, that's even the word. That's kind of the Chinese translation or the, 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 the translation from Chinese. Okay. In other words, that these are people that have been detained and it's justified uh, through this very arbitrary label of that they have become extremists. Hmm. And if you are taken in, then you're let go when they decide to let you go. Exactly. There's, there's absolutely no due process. Um, there are no... Um, standards of, of how long the detention should last. Um, there have been stories of, of people who have um, been released uh, that, uh, that some of their uh, cellmates have been in there for several months. There are also reports now that as they emerge that uh, Uyghurs living outside of China have, have family members lived uh, or have been detained for over a year. Uh, again, all without uh, due process, all without actually uh, having been accused uh, uh, of a crime, um, yeah. and and so yeah. Well, here's here's a, uh, I think an important question that some some might be thinking, and that is, does China have due process? Uh, officially. Uh, I mean, I'm not a, a legal scholar, uh, and so I think there are people who are uh, better suited to answer this question. But but looking at some of the legal documents, mm-hmm. um, there is a process um, um, for criminal behavior, uh, and they are supposed to 
for example, you can't arbitrarily detain someone past 30 days. But if they're suspected of being a threat to the state, well, then there's a statute which allows you to have them, to detain them um, um, longer. And because of this, again, the, this, this kind of gray area about what's a threat to the state, legally uh, in China, I, I think this, in the eyes of the Chinese uh, government, this justifies their actions because they're saying that these are special circumstances, these are quote unquote extremists, therefore we have the right to do this. And of course it's, it's, it's baloney because, um, you know, again, that there's no evidence that 10% of a population has, uh, has um, embraced an extreme uh, interpretation of, of, of Islam or of ethno-national identity, et cetera. Yeah, so they have their own version of a, a Patriot Act or mm -hmm. uh, a loophole to to take <clears throat> take further or, or much much broader uh, actions, mm -hmm. um, uh, much like we have here. Mm -hmm. Now, with regard to the ten percent, because that that is a huge number. We're talking yes. about, like I said, over over a million folks that are that have been detained, mm -hmm. uh, taken away forcibly. Um, the justification for that, this idea of extremism, was that rooted in uh, what happened in, uh, in uh, Lukchon? Mm -hmm. Was that rooted in that uh, 24 police officers are, are well, not 24 police, right. but police as well as the individual that uh, committed the crime, uh, the, the murder of the young boy, and then they in turn, the police kill mm -hmm. 11 of them. Uh, and this was presented to the nation by state-run media as extremification, mm -hmm. right? So it, did, that, did that incident play a part in the justification of this program? I mean, I, I think that the Luke Chun incident uh, played a small part, uh, but there are other more publicized um, instances of violence. And there was a string of violence that again, the Chinese government points to and says, look, we are justified in these extreme measures because look at these uh, incidents of violence that have occurred in 2009 in Urumqi. Uh, um, there was a, an attempted, uh, well, there was a, a, a young uh, a Uyghur family, a Uyghur man who drove an SUV into Tiananmen Square. Um, there were s several other attacks. Now, again, these are isolated incidents, but the Chinese Communist Party is saying, no, this is symptomatic uh, of a deeper-rooted issue of extremism. Um, um, and so it goes back to your very question, does that have something to do? Yes, but I, I think that this is kind of the, the straw man here. This is what the Chinese Communist Party is saying, that this is extremism is a threat look at what's going on and what they're and they're again they're blaming it on this you know these this quote unquote extreme interpretation of islam because they're trying to get people to ignore the failures of the own of the chinese government's own policies in the mm -hmm. region and so it becomes kind of a blanket statement extremism and so this is what they're presenting it to their own people they're presenting it to a global audience as the Chinese government's victims of global Islamist movements when uh, there is almost zero evidence that any of the violence is tied to any sort of, of Islamist uh, or militant movement. Mm. You know what? Um, we're going to take a short break. When we come back, uh, I want to hear 
about China's response to our condemnation. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that's going to be an interesting, uh, an interesting uh, conversation. Mm -hmm. All right, folks, if you're just tuning in, we're talking with Dr. Timothy Gross of um, Rose, uh, excuse me, <clears throat> of Rose Holman Institute of Technology in Terre Haute. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back. The Syrian Community Network, with offices nationwide, serves its Chicago area clients from its Northside location, located at 5439 North Broadway. They provide housing, social services, education, basic human needs, and food security. The Syrian Community Network has Arabic-speaking staff and is a partner organization of the Illinois Coalition for Immigrant and Refugee Rights. You can get more info by calling area code 872 806-0141. That's area code 872-806-0141 or by visiting their website at syriancommunitynetwork.org. And now we have an eight-year-old on the line. Welcome to Our World Today. What's your question? Our continents make up 29% of the Earth's surface meaning that 71% is comprised of water. Man automatically adapts to environmental conditions. So why do I need to take swimming lessons? Are you ready for kids who eat healthy? Good nutrition can lead to great things. To find out how a healthy lifestyle can help your child succeed, go to mypyramid.gov. Brought to you by the Ad Council and USDA. When Dad needed help getting around, I became his driver. Soon enough, it was up to me to be his housekeeper and financial manager, too. When he moved in, I became his cook and even his nurse. But no matter what roles I play, I know I'm still his daughter. We understand the roles you play. So to help, we created aarp.org caregiving, where you can connect with experts and other caregivers. Visit aarp.org caregiving. Brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. Would your business survive a disaster? Nearly two-thirds of businesses aren't prepared for an emergency and 40% of businesses that experience a disaster never recover. Make an emergency plan now before it's too late. For a free online tool that helps you develop an emergency plan to keep your business up and running should disaster strike, visit ready.gov forward slash business. Brought to you by the Federal Emergency Management Agency, the American Red Cross, and the Ad Council. Hey mom, why is the sky blue? Why don't animals talk? Why do dogs have wet noses? Why is an 11 pronounced 21? Kids ask a lot of questions. Why do I have a belly button? But you don't have to know every answer. Why is the ocean salty? Because you don't have to be perfect to be a perfect parent. Why are there 50 states? There are thousands of children in foster care who don't need every question answered. Why is pizza round? They just need you. For more information on how you can adopt, go to adoptuskids.org. A public service announcement from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Adopt U.S. Kids, and the Ad Council. Welcome back. Welcome back to Radio Islam. This is your host, Tariq Kalameen. We are broadcasting on WCEV 1450 AM, streaming live at WCEV1450.com. And you can find us on social media or wherever you get your podcast at Radio Islam USA. That's at Radio Islam USA. 
And if you would like to give us a call uh, for the second half uh, the program, you can do so at 312-750-1178. That's 312-750-1178. And if you are just tuning in, well, the podcast will be up tomorrow. So you can catch what you missed earlier. But uh, we have in studio with us this evening, Dr. Timothy Gross. He is an assistant professor of China Studies at Rolls-Holman Institute of Technology in Terre Haute. Uh, Indiana. We've been talking about the Uyghur, uh, um, uh, an indigenous Muslim population of uh, Turkic uh, descent in China. And they are, uh, the name really sounded really, just like I said, really benign uh, that they've given it. Uh, Center for, what is it? Transfer, correction, transformation, education? Yeah, education, transformation, sometimes training centers. Or centers yeah. yeah, but but basically we're talking about an internment camp. Uh, we're talking about a space where people are being, uh, the idea is to strip them of their Muslim identity uh, so that they are more uh, desirable as, um, as, as citizens of, of China. That's basically the bottom line. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So, and, and some of those techniques from what, I've, from what I have uh, read about, from what I, I've read about, they are quite harsh. Uh, it's not simply just a matter of a talking to, but uh, in one article I read that some folks are physically are physically tortured. Yeah. Um, so there are, of course, now several uh, of these uh, internment camps uh, that have been built really since 2000. I mean, the massification of this program, the acceleration of this program really began in 2016. Uh, and so there's some variation in what actually goes on there. But what we've heard from survivors of these camps is that uh, the days are um, highly scripted, uh, almost as if you were in prison. Um, so you wake up early given a very meager uh, meal. There's marching in place, singing of cadences that are very, uh, you know, pro-China, pro-Communist Party, um, what they call education sessions, which you would, you know, watch videos about correct religious belief, correct religious practices, quote-unquote. Um, there's also some um, actually official documents that, you know, a couple times each week there are one-on-one um, -on -one conversations with uh, uh, authorities uh, within these internment camps, self-criticism, uh, and yeah, there's um, uh, also evidence of, of forms of torture um, uh, for uh, those that, who have been incarcerated. Hmm. Now, Radio Islam family, I want for us for a moment to think about, uh, as, as we hear this, we hear, we hear uh, uh, Tim speaking about this, and you feeling uh, you feeling uh, something in the pit of your stomach, right? This doesn't feel right. Uh, it's it's shocking, horrifying. You know, you're like, how could this be going on? Uh, let's remember the internment of Japanese Americans uh, during World War II. Uh, let's also think about uh, and before I even go on, go on, let's think about how these people were taken from their homes, from their property lost everything and were put into camps uh, under armed guard. And then let's also think about today. Um, the uh, Supreme Court of the United States upheld, um, basically upheld the latest iteration uh, of the Trump administration's travel ban, which we understand is a Muslim ban. And 
think about where we're situated and think about how you're responding to those things as you feel uneasy and distressed about hearing about uh, the Uyghur, which you should absolutely feel distressed about. My question for you in saying all of that mm -hmm. is when America and any, any place else, the United States, any place else, uh, begins to condemn China for its human rights violations, its human, human rights abuses, how does China, how does China respond to that? How do they uh, look at what goes on here? And uh, is it, do they look at it as, is, are we giving them fuel? Um, do, they, do they take the condemnation seriously? What's in your estimation, what has been your well, observation? Well, certainly they don't take the condemnation seriously or they would have reversed course on several of their uh, policies. But, you know, annually there's a human rights report I issued uh, on the situation in China. And oh, about a week or so later, uh, China releases its own report uh, on human rights violations, which, of course, uh, we know are, are still plaguing the United States. And so they say, well, look what's going on. Uh, in the United States, so who are you to say that? Um, who are you to say that we're doing something uh, wrong uh, or um, we're violating human rights when this is what's going on uh, in your country? Um, for the case of the internment camps, so uh, China or Chinese officials have unequivocally denied their existence. So right now we have, mm. you know, a more um, a, a increasingly louder voice um, raising awareness and speaking out against these. Until this point, uh, Chinese officials have denied their existence. So uh, this probably won't play uh, into any kind of any, um, you know, you know, forthcoming human rights reports issued by China that describe the situation occurring in the United States. So how have we been able to verify or, or surmise that these camps do in fact uh, exist? Yeah, so we've had to um, weave together um, uh, evidence, some circumstantial evidence, uh, uh, and the evidence gets, gets more and more obvious at first. Um, you know, we noticed uh, government bids for the construction of these large detention centers mm -hmm. uh, that a colleague, Adrian Zenz, in, in Germany uh, has uncovered. Uh, we have Sean Zhang, uh, who has looked at satellite images and has actually seen uh, these concentration camps, uh, uh, you know, in, in, on these satellite images where they didn't exist uh, a couple years ago. Mm -hmm. um, there are now survivors who are speaking out. Um, and then sometimes the, the government websites, uh, so I'm talking about Chinese government websites, aren't very good at, at hiding evidence. Um, and so there have been some uh, websites, something about the uh, government in Lopnor, uh, Xinjiang, specifically that actually posted pictures of a, uh, a, an opening ceremony for a concentration camp, that, that the lettering, the, literally the, the, the writing was on the wall that said this was a re-education concentration camp. Mm -hmm. um, and so, so now we have you know, pretty uh, obvious, undeniable evidence of their existence. Um, and as more people speak out, I think that's all going to cooperate and the numbers are going to be um, unfortunately verified that it is about 10% of the population. Mm-hmm. So what has been the, uh, or has there been a sustained, um, uh, is there a building response 
internationally. Uh, because if China is is denying the existence, mm -hmm. even though they have themselves on tape, mm -hmm. uh, on film, uh, has there been a uh, an international response? Uh, slowly but surely. Um, at first, you know, the movement um, I think was spearheaded by uh, academics, and specifically those academics that are engaged. Uh, with Xinjiang uh, or the Uyghurs mm -hmm. um, and through various um, um, uh, people within that group, uh, they have developed a kind of multifaceted strategy uh, that, um, again, I, we don't want to give away this strategy, but we have reached out to uh, different venues and different people with the hopes that um, we're going to raise awareness um, and through awareness um, you know, there will be um, a mounted uh, and unified voice uh, that will speak out against these uh, concentration camps or these, uh, these detention centers, and hopefully a, a global but unified voice will put enough pressure uh, on the Chinese Communist Party to put, the, put this, this uh, practice to an end. Hmm. Now, I can't help but think about um, just bringing it back home for a minute, make, just making this uh, observation, that uh, with the election of, of, uh, of Donald Trump, mm -hmm. that there was, uh, it felt like, and it seemed to be an immediate spike in anti-Muslim mm -hmm. uh, violence uh, in the United States. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's something, you know, with the president setting the tone uh, and energizing a base that probably doesn't even know Muslims, mm -hmm. but just simply looking at, looking at them as the other, it rouses them up. So they become de facto, um, they become um, actors on behalf of the state, mm -hmm. uh, of, of acting out the state sentiment. Does that same type of, um, that same type of uh, activity or paradigm, does that exist uh, in China, in these regions where uh, the, the Uyghur, uh, Uyghur are? Mm -hmm. And are they similarly, uh, do, they, do they endure similar bias from Han um, uh, population, uh, where their targets themselves of not only being possibly picked up or taken off to a, a re-education mm -hmm. center, but the ob to be the object of uh, violence? Right. So, yeah, unfortunately, there, Islamophobia is a, a global phenomenon, and we do see growing Islamophobia occurring uh, in China, not just Xinjiang, but China, and occurring especially among um, uh, the majority Han population, especially kind of the Han nationalist uh, population, um, to the degree uh, in which, you know, s uh, netizens are, are outspoken against uh, what has been described as the um, holification of of, of society, where they're against, you know, labeling even foods uh, halal because of China's strict stance on the separation of quote unquote, you know, church and state. I don't mean to use you know uh, American uh, terminology here, or U.S. terminology here. Uh, nevertheless, we, we we see that, and we don't necessarily see pushback from the government saying that you know this is these are examples of discrimination of ethnic discrimination and hatred uh and so without the government stepping in um it I, uh, to me suggests kind of um a subtle endorsement of this type of, of, of islamophobia uh because the type of this kind of hard nationalist sentiment 
isn't going to undermine or threaten the Chinese state, the same as, as Islamophobia in, in the, the U.S., right? There's, I mean, mm -hmm. I think those who espouse and promote Islamophobia in the U.S. aren't seen by the, the powers that be as threats. Whereas, uh, unfortunately, again, this is, this is of course, uh, unfounded, mm -hmm. Islam is seen as a threat to state values, right? So, right. yeah, we do think there's otherness going on, and it's allowed, this discrimination is allowed because it's all about preserving the state power. Right. So uh, it's, really not, it's really not necessary for the state to come out and say Islam is a threat. Uh, it would be sufficient to simply build a re-education center. Um, but even still, are there people that are within leadership positions that are, um, that are active, you know, Islamophobes? Uh, yeah, there was, um, um, actually there was, um, so, so China it has a, a very complex, or the Chinese government has a very complex bureaucracy. Mm -hmm. um, there was an instance of um, uh, someone in Ningxia, Ningxia is an autonomous region for, for Hui people. Uh, he was um, uh, dismissed actually uh, after he promoted um, you know, a standardization of what is labeled as, as halal. Uh, and this dismissal was seen again as kind of a um, a state response uh, to what was being viewed by some people within the Chinese uh, government apparatus as uh, an Islamification of China uh, and the fear of of Islam's growing influence in the region. So, so certainly, I think with this dismissal, uh, we see uh, the state being very proactive in its attempt to curtail and contain the influence of Islam in, in among its 24 million adherents. Hmm. Now, is there a centralized uh, leadership among the uh, Uyghur Muslim population? Uh, well, yeah, so Uyghurs in diaspora, uh, there's the World Uyghur Congress, um, and, and they act as a um, as a counter voice um, to what's going on uh, in the People's Republic of China. Um, um, now, within uh, China itself, um, you know, as a kind of a, a general rule, uh, Uyghur officials are always subordinate to Han officials. And we look at the, the highest ranking position in Xinjiang, which is uh, the party secretary. Um, with one exception, and this occurred during the Cultural Revolution, and so the whole country was in chaos then. Uh, the individual who held the highest ranking position in Xinjiang has been a Han. Uh, and then uh, the governor, which is uh, the subordinate position to this party secretary, has been Uyghur. So even we see the structure of the government really being a reflection of the type of power dynamics that exist in Xinjiang. And it's a power dynamic that Han control, um, that really kind of the everyday politics, uh, the everyday uh, uh, policies in, in the region. Mm. Now, there's also, like in a, in a place like uh, Kashgar, mm -hmm. where their Ministry of uh, Tourism mm -hmm. um, has it set so that uh, tourists are able to walk in unannounced mm -hmm. into people's homes. Um, so those people there, and, and, and there's an arrangement which you can uh, tell us a, a mm -hmm. bit about, but it would seem that those people there would see themselves as as actors, mm -hmm. uh, you know, kind of in a fishbowl. 
that might bring about some resentment. Exactly. I mean, right? I think that there are several policies that, that breed uh, discontent in Xinjiang and, and this, this kind of using Uyghur culture uh, as um, as a, a kind of a living museum is, is one of those uh, policies. And so we see somewhat of a paradox uh, in the Chinese government's policy, and that is they want to promote, quote unquote, Uyghur culture, but it has to be diluted. It has to be watered down. So I like to tell my students that, you know, think of, you know, culture and your collective identity as being a box and you fill it with this cultural stuff, right? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, for, for Uyghurs themselves, they will, you know, Islam is part of this identity. Um, festivals are part of this identity, you know, um, you know, you know, clothing, greetings, etc. Well, the Chinese Communist Party wants to take control of that box, and they want to pick what goes in, and they want to discard what they think is is you know threatening to the state. And so, they want to keep some elements of Uyghur culture, but like I said, it's very superficial. It's yeah. it's clothing, it's architecture, but they want to take out those really kind of powerful, um, the, the 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 really powerful influencing um, agents uh, or elements uh, that could be detrimental. Islam is one of them. And then, you know, loyalties to kind of upon uh, Turkism, right? So Turkic language, so Uyghur language is a Turkic language, right? So right. again, so that's why we see this, this kind of diluting of, of, of Uyghur culture. And so going back to your question about these tourist villages, it's like here we have a living museum. We can enjoy Uyghur culture but you're enjoying their food, uh, which is, of course, benign. You're enjoying their clothing. You're enjoying their architecture. But don't appreciate that their identity is also grounded in elements of Islam. Right. Now, to look at Islam as a, th as a threat, there w well, there does not have to be any analytical, any data to support that. Mm -hmm. But from your no uh, to your knowledge, is Islam spreading among Han Chinese or those who are in contact with the Uyghur uh, population? Yes. Yeah, so I mean, there are, there have been, you know, instances of conversion, um, but I think Han converts to Islam uh, are much fewer than, and significantly fewer than Han converts to Christianity. And actually, Christianity in China is also, you know, experiencing, I think, a heightened. Uh, repression. Um, mm. But yes, certainly um, there are instances in recent history of, of Han converting uh, to Islam, but um, it, it's, it's a rarity. So it, it seems like it may be that this fear is founded in a historical, uh, more, more in a historical um, framework, uh, seeing that it has had a power to uh, incite social change and cultural mm -hmm. revolution and uh, and and basically, that's where they're oper operating from, from a worst-case scenario. N not, not, to, not to even say that um, Muslims in, in power would be, you know, that it would result in, you know, a slaughter, right? Mm -hmm. Because uh, history does not affirm that either. Right. Um, so, but, but there appears that it appears that their fears are unfounded, but... There, there are levels to that as well, and I don't know if we're gonna have time to get into those yeah. as well. But <laughs> just within the Xinjiang, uh, that region, uh, about how materially uh, resource rich it is, mm -hmm. and then it also being a pathway through uh, Central Asia, 
uh, as well. Uh, It it has strategic um, uh, 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 benefit, uh, which would also garner the attention of of China. Yeah, exactly. I think the paranoia definitely has roots in history. Um, It it suggests even though the official Chinese Communist Party narrative is that Xinjiang has always and always will be a part uh, of China, but there certainly hasn't been uninterrupted China-based sovereignty in the region. And it's mo- as recently as uh, early 20th century, actually mid-20th century, there were two instances of uh, independent um, uh, Turkestan uh, in what's present-day Xinjiang. And, you know, h- history and memory are, are hard to erase. And I think, again, this, this paranoia has its roots not just in, in ancient history, uh, but in, in more recent history, you know, history within the last 80, 90 years of, uh, and again, the, the legacy of an independent polity in modern-day Xinjiang. Hmm. Okay. Um, what is the last thing, what, what is the one thing that you want the listeners to walk away with? Um, g- give, give us some homework. Right. Um, I mean, one is I'm glad now that the, the Hopefully there were people that had never heard of the Uyghurs and had never heard of these concentration camps that now know about it. And and hopefully that will motivate them to uh, do some reading. There have been some excellent articles um, in in foreign policy, uh, in Jamestown, in Diplomat, um, in CNN, um, that they can can learn more. And it's about, right at this point, to increase awareness and... um, you know, it's simply as simple as, as talking to friends and neighbors uh, about this, um, about this very serious um, human rights violation that, that's going on. Um, and really, that's, that's, if I've accomplished that goal today, um, then I'll consider um, this hour, uh, you know, more than successful. Well, I'm going to call it a success. <laughs> <laughs> Tim, I appreciate you taking the time uh, to come here uh, uh, in studio. You could have gotten on the phone, but it was much, much more rewarding uh, to have you in studio to be able to talk with you. Again, the, the seriousness of, of, um, of the occasion. Again, I wish this occasion was under uh, better circumstances, but yeah. um, I wouldn't miss this opportunity for the world. All right. Thanks a lot. All right, Radio Sign family, we've been talking with Dr. Timothy Gross, Assistant Professor of China Studies at Rose-Holman Institute of Technology in Terre Haute, Indiana. Um, it's that time. Uh, but before I go, before we get off the air, I want to tell you, join us tomorrow, tomorrow night. Our guest is going to be Donna Austin. The title of that conversation, Fighting Holy Hegemony. Yeah, that's right. We said it. Okay, so uh, tune in tomorrow night. But right now, we want to thank our engineer over at WCEV, Ramon. Thank you very much, sir. We thank our engineer in studio, the impressive one, Ibrahim Beg. I'm your host and producer, Tariq Alamine. Our executive producer is Abdul Malik Mujahid. We remind you that the views expressed by the host and our guests are theirs and not to be taken as a representation of Sound Vision Foundation. That being said, fa- that being said family, I'm going to leave you as we greeted you. Assalamu alaikum. May the peace that only God can give be upon you. Thank you.